Hello, everyone. Um, how are you all doing? Good? Um, I'm incredibly excited to introduce our second speaker, Dr. Lee Bofkin, who is one of the co-founders of Global Street Art. And he's here today to talk about some of the major trends in and the rise of hand-painted advertising. Please put your hands together to um, welcome Lee to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. How, how is everyone? Uh, enjoying DNAD? Everything's cool? Let's take that as yes. Um, thank you massively for letting me come here today and, uh, and have a chat with you guys. Um, I'm going to explain a few things. I'm going to talk about a history of global street art and what's happening in painting around the world today. And then also what's changed in reference for hand-painted advertising. And I should probably start with an admission. Um, my background isn't in advertising. I've kind of stumbled into the industry um, a little bit by by accident, um, but we'll go through all of that stuff. So uh, the title of the talk is about boundaries between art and advertising, and actually it's a real pleasure to be able to talk about the boundary between art and advertising, and how an increasing amount of advertising has that feeling of being bespoke or one-off, and that's where the hand-painted side comes into it. So I'll give you a bit of a personal story. Um, can everyone hear me okay? You're right at the back, I can shout if you need. Right. Um, so I've got a really strange mixed background. Uh, on the one hand, I used to uh, break dance for the UK. I was a dancer about 15 years ago now. Uh, and then on the other side, I was a scientist. So I've got a PhD in maths and evolution. I was a, uh, an evolutionary biologist. But nothing about what I was doing at the time could kind of set me up for advertising. But over various iterations, a sports injury, my kind of two sides, the academic side and the, the dance side, kind of collided. And it, and it allowed me, with the help of a big team, um, to be one of the co-founders of, of Global Street Art. So what is Global Street Art? Um, if you understand one thing about us today, it's this. So Global Street Art was founded in 2012. Our organization has a very simple mission, and I'll talk about missions later. That mission is simple, to live in painted cities. And everything that we do at Global Street Art serves that purpose, basically. So the first side of Global Street Art is we have an online platform um, we have about half a million fans on social media, and we promote street art and street artists online. Because most of the street art and painting that people see around the world is actually, it's online. I mean, if you live in Shoreditch, you'll see a lot around you, but you'll see more going through your news feed, your Instagram feed, whatever kind of network you're on. So we promote street art and artists online, and often that gives us a very loose relationship, which is important, uh, with artists all over the world. And some of those artists eventually come to London we meet them, we become friends, and that's the second side of what we do, is we organize, we help organize art. So since 2012, uh, we've helped organize over 2,000 legal street art murals. Uh, a lot of the building sites historically on Great Eastern Street and around uh, Shoreditch, we've uh, helped support as part of a program we have called Building Sites. But if you've walked around London and you've seen enough street art, there's no way that you would have missed quite a few pieces that we would have helped organize along the way. The third side of what we do then is the commercial side, because the online side and the helping artists is, is completely non-commercial. It's just to drive that mission to live in painted cities. The third thing that we do is commercial. Um, it's, it's an agency. So we have globalstreetart.com, and then we have globalstreetart.agency. Two-thirds of our business is hand-painted advertising, uh, but then we also work on commercial licensing projects, uh, and then working for landlords, property developers, painting large murals, I'll show you those as well. But that's the third side of what we do, the agency. 
So you now know our mission and how we, uh, how we try and go about achieving that. Big mission to live in painted cities, and we do it in three ways. We go online, we help support art in the real world, public murals, and then we have the agency side. I'm going to give you the quickest background to street art and graffiti. I'm going to try and condense it down into 60 seconds or less. Um, because it's, there's a, a real relevance in not only the narrative, the narrative that I'm going to tell you about what's changed in the last 50 years, but also how this applies to how you give a narrative and, and other conversations as well. That will become clear. Um, so it's very easy, it's not the accurate history, but it's quite easy to think of the early roots of graffiti in New York in the late 1970s, the early 1980s, on the outside of trains. And trains, painting on trains formed a certain function that to some extent social media has helped supplement or supplant today. So one of the reasons to paint on trains is you could paint at one place in the city and that train would go all over the city and then your friends would see the art. Well, Instagram, with things like Instagram, you can paint anywhere, else, uh, anywhere in the world today and then within seconds, all of your friends around the world will have seen that piece of art. When you use words like street art or graffiti, you're talking about three different things. You're talking about an art form, a crime, and a subculture. And what we do, what Global Street Art is, is about celebrating that art form, working with the subculture, working with artists, um, but not so much to do with the crime element. So our cities, have, I'm sure you've seen, have become a lot more painted in the last even 10 years. Well, the 50-year fuse, with the separation of the art form and the crime, there's a lot more legal opportunities to, for people to paint around the world today Consequently, there's a lot more art. So the three key trends that I'm going to show you now explain why there's, help explain why there's so much more street art, murals, painting happening in the world today. And this is a 50-year fuse taking us to here. So what I want you to take is, if we extrapolate a little bit going forwards, it's inevitable our cities are going to be more painted. So here's the trends that have helped our cities be more painted that are going to continue in future. The first trend then is art. So a lot of times when people think about street art, they think about stencils, they think about Banksy, that stuff of course still happens, but the art itself has broadened out, become that much more complicated um, and that much more diverse. So street art is really just a catch-all term for all sorts of art forms that are happening around the world today that just happen to be outside. So of course stencils still exist, but there's some really clever things happening that look a lot like installations. This one is always a popular picture for folks who kind of like agency work and work, and it's, 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 it's sort of certainly done the rounds. There's a really clever use of space, and I'll talk about that as well. So uh, not just stencils, not just installations, but graffiti itself, writing your letters, choosing your name, writing your name, this one says fork for, itself has become that much more complicated as well. There's been huge technical shifts where spray paint has become more available. It's become, uh, uh, when I say more available, a much broader range of colors. The spray paint caps that you can get can spray something as wide as a football or as narrow as a, a, a hair, not quite, but very narrow, a pencil. So the materials and techniques that we're able to use have broadened a lot as well. This is the next few slides that I'm going to show you are all street art, but what I want you to take from them is how different each one is to the last picture I showed you. So all this stuff is street art, and it includes things like reinterpreting past masterpieces. It includes painting things of realism. So works of realism, hyperrealism, photorealism, there's a lot of terms floating around that. This also fits within quote-unquote street art. 
Sign writing, whilst not street art, has definitely been reinvigorated, and we work with a lot of people who have sign writing and typography, typographic skills, within their pantheon, within what they're able to do, but they just happen to do it on big walls as well. This is another example of, of street art, but actually it's a huge calligraphic work. Uh, this, as it happens, was a piece that we organized uh, in a housing estate a little bit by accident. We thought that someone else owned the wall. It turned out that the housing estate owned the wall. But when we started it, the manager of the housing estate thought we were doing such a good job. He let us finish. Uh, and then we ended up painting about 30 murals in that one housing estate. And we started a program to get murals in housing estates because of that one happy accident. But this is a, a, a work, a, a calligraphic work. It's calligraphy. And it's very different to the other pieces I showed you before. A geometric abstract piece, again, still street art, but looks very different to what you've seen before. So that's the point then of, of those slides, that everything is quite different, but we're calling it all street art. So what street art is or could be has broadened out a lot. We brought a book out a few years ago um, that explains something else about street art, that, okay, the art itself has changed a lot, but it's always going to be different from gallery-based art because the context is different. So the type of art that gets produced depends on the space that you're producing it in. So when you've got a gallery, and it's quite unquote known as the white cube, you produce works that you can kind of take off the wall, you can sell them easily. With street art, unless you're gonna cut bricks out of a wall, you generally can't sell it. It's generally more integrated into that space, not always, but sometimes, and it's more playful because it can directly play and interact with the environment. So this next quick set of slides show how the the space influences the artwork that goes there. So this is also that conversation, that dialogue with public space is also something that's changed over the years. Um, you don't have to paint big, tall walls. Uh, this is in Mexico, it's of a fallen soldier. In fact, you don't really have to paint walls at all. Uh, this was a, a well-known piece from a few years ago called Helping Hand. It was a beautiful piece, it's under a motorway. So, you know, street art is really con can be really context dependent. It can be as much about the space and also then the art form itself has changed. So that was trend number one. Remember, I was gonna send you three trends, so that was quite a long one, but the art's really good, basically. Uh, so the technique and the materials has gotten a lot broader. The aesthetic influences have gotten a lot broader. Some of that is driven by and supported by social media. You've seen that in modern illustration, and you see that in the people you're following on Instagram as well. So the art is broader. Trend two is organization. And I guess if I'm able to sort of stand here and speak with you guys today, one of the reasons is there's more organization uh, around the industry, the, the, the world of street art. So what that's allowed, for example, is a lot more festivals. So the UK has got some really good street art festivals. Liverpool had one this year. Manchester has historically had some. Bristol has had two different street art festivals. Cheltenham even has. There's loads, Blackpool, et cetera, et cetera. Over the last 10 years, but really accelerated as we're coming up to today, there's been an increasing number of street art festivals and large-scale projects sometimes organized by artists and sometimes organized by non-artists happening around the world today. So organization. We have a, a couple of examples of our own. I mentioned this one before. We have a program that works with uh, construction sites. Building sites are boring, dull places. They're pretty ugly. They're noisy. We kind of rationalized that, well, partly because we were running out of walls in Shoreditch because everything getting, kept getting knocked down and redeveloped. But we, were, we kind of thought, well, actually, if we can turn a building site into a rotating gallery, maybe it lasts two years, three years, but that historically dull space can serve a really good canvas for artists that are visiting from around the world for the life of that space. And so we look after quite a few building sites today. So that's one. 
I mentioned, again, another example of organization, a formal program. This is another one of ours. It's called Art for Estates. Um, some really uh, beautiful pieces. We're active in about four or five different housing estates in London. That's one of the things that we're most proud of. Camden, London has 30 boroughs. Camden as a borough has about 150 different housing estates. There's such massive potential for painting more. When people say or ask the good question, is street art saturated? Well, a lot of walls are painted in this neighborhood, but still it's a fairly low percentage of walls. Um, everyone in our, uh, our office, our studio, our team, kind of sees how much further that this can go. So again, this is part of that inevitability of, of uh, cities being painted more in future. So again, this is the, that second trend leading in, which is organization. So those are the first two trends why we're getting a lot more street art. The first is the arts change, the second one is organization. The third one then is enterprise. So there's a lot more commercial opportunities related to painting and things around painting that probably didn't exist in the same way 15 years ago, and quite a few of those are, uh, are supported by sharing stuff on social media. This is where I kind of, the talk takes a, a bit of a divergence and starts talking about things that are staunchly more commercial. So some of the things that we do um, that, uh, um, that uh, uh, we charge, that, that, uh, some of the, the work that we have, the commercial work that we have, includes things like placemaking. Placemaking is just a fancy word for making spaces more attractive, so people want to go and visit them. It's pretty obvious. Um, we do that quite a lot. That's where we work with landlords and property developers. Uh, we work in a lot of places around London, but we also work internationally as well. And one of the reasons it works so well is relative to knocking a building down and starting again, if you essentially give the building a bit of a tattoo or a, a coat of paint or you change the way it looks, the easiest way to change the way that people feel about being in a neighborhood is change the way that neighborhood looks. One of the least expensive ways of doing that is just painting it. And so there's this inherent advantage that painting surfaces has over other ways of changing how stuff looks because it's relatively simple to do it. So placemaking, this was a, a quite a popular um, uh, abandoned petrol station. Uh, and it really wasn't expensive to change the way it looked, and it became a, a, a meanwhile space. You kind of know that it's going well when you, you know, you're on YouTube and all of a sudden you see a couple of music videos and you're like, wait a minute, we, we painted that one in, in the background of stuff. Um, and then also, I guess we, we crop up uh, from time to time on dating apps because people are standing in front of stuff that we've painted. And that just shows like how pervasive painting is and kind of how much it's sort of appreciated. So, one of the things that I'll talk to you about today, because it's two-thirds of, of what our business is, is hand-painted advertising. Hand-painted advertising is exactly what it looks like. It's bespoke. It tends to be very large murals. They're painted by teams of artists, uh, typically. And you can do some pretty cool things with it. This was about three or four years ago, uh, working for Sony Xperia. And this was the first time on this scale that UV lights were used in this country in public space on painting. So we painted these walls with UV and they change color from day to night. So you can do some really cool things. Print is an amazing medium. Painting, not just in my opinion, but I can explain why, you can do so many things with paint that you can't do with print. The finishes, the glitter paints, the gloss paints, the varnishes, there's so many rich materials that you can use in paint that are quite difficult to replicate in print and digitally. It allows us to have a point of differentiation. And in advertising, differentiation counts for a lot. So, um, this already feels out of date. In the last couple of weeks, we've painted uh, a mural for Le Bhutan. We've painted one that finished yesterday for Swatch Watches. We're painting a total of 15 murals, large murals for brands this month. It's really busy, uh, including one for Gucci in Mexico, which is kind of fun. Um, 
this before I handed the talk in a couple of weeks ago were some of the highlights that we've had of 2019 so far. Um, so you get a sense of the scale. And as far as advertising goes, it's still advertising. We don't call this street art, by the way, because it just isn't. It's hand-painted advertising. It's something different. As soon as the commercial element gets in there, we just don't think of it as street art anymore. And we try and have frank conversations with our clients not to try and overtly buy into street art culture because actually they're supporting, they're working with something else. They're working with artists who, whose methods are mired in tra uh, traditional techniques and doing something quite different. So Converse, you might have seen some of these. This was a project for MAC Cosmetics uh, that was earlier this year as well. This was quite a fun one because they were promoting a matte I learned quite a lot about lipstick. They were promoting a matte lipstick. So to make the campaign a little bit more special, we used a gloss varnish on the faces of the, uh, of the women, and then we kept the lips matte. So when you looked at it in a certain angle, you could see the faces were shiny, but the lips stayed matte. So there was a clever tie-in between the materials uh, and, the, and the artwork, the execution. This was obviously a huge campaign for HSBC. Um, we painted murals in uh, London, Manchester, and Birmingham. And I think to sort of step back, one of the key things that we do that's a bit different is we have our own network of walls. So what we think of ourselves as, moving away from kind of street art and painting, just thinking about us as an agency, is we're a full service agency. What that means is when clients come to us, we can provide them the walls, a design service, and the painting execution service, and then we also film everything in-house as well, so we generate the content. So we try and make it as easy as possible for our clients to just come to one space to get all this stuff done as seamlessly as possible. Um, this was a fun one from this year as well, another UV piece for North Face on Great Eastern Street, so just around the corner from here. Um, again, changing color between day and night because of UV paints and UV lighting. Um, something that's much more uh, in common with typography or sign writing. This was for Umbro earlier this year in Manchester. This was a recent one for Fitbit on Great Eastern Street on one of the walls that we look after exclusively as well. Uh, this was our first one for Gucci in Mexico City. So remember when I said before that we have helped a lot of artists find places to paint in London? That's led to kind of a really sweet accidental karma effect. And it's basically come because we've started with this mission to live in painted cities, We've pursued that relentlessly and helped artists where we can, but one of the things that's given us is an amazing global network. So when Gucci's agency in Italy came to us and said, can you help us find the best people to paint with in Mexico? We said, no problem, and the mural was uh, a, a real success. We're actually painting uh, the second mural for them in Mexico City today, which is fun. Uh, this was a recent one that you might have seen, one on the, uh, in South London by Elephant and Castle and another one on Great Eastern Street. This was designed in-house using client assets, but often design for us can be quite simple because often campaigns have already got the artwork. So what we're doing is taking them and adapting them to the space. We also do a lot of other design in-house as well, but some of it is fairly simple. Uh, that specific wall where we had GoPro has a real lovely advantage. Basically, the, the, every time we paint a commercial mural on there, it puts money into a fund when that fund hits a level, it automatically triggers a free mural for charity, which is really sweet. So this was one of the first murals we painted for, charity this, uh, for a charity this year. Uh, Shannon Trust, awesome charity. They basically deal with literacy in the prison population. 
So imagine that you know, if you can't read and you're stuck in jail, um, you, you can't basically choose what's on the menu, you can't read letters, you can't write letters. They have a massive impact in changing people's lives in the prison population. And so the concept behind it was really, it's really nice working with smaller charities because sometimes it allows us to have more creative input into the concept. So we work with three well-known typography, muralist artists, street artists, designers. They're just really talented guys generally, called Gary Stranger, Ben Ein, uh, and Pref, other way around actually. Um, Pref, Gary Stranger, Pref, Ben Ein, and then Gary Stranger. And the idea is more than words. So it makes sense, right? You would have what the Shannon Trust does is more than words, literacy is more than words. Why wouldn't you work with three really cool typographic artists on a concept that says more than words? You get it. Um, this was another really fun recent one as well. Murals are often seen as being for people who can see, obviously. But then there's charities like DeafBlind who deal with people who can neither see nor hear. And the, the idea was how do you create a, a, a mural for that population? So we integrated, amongst other things, lots of textures into the mural. And sometimes that creative idea can be as simple as blending sand into the paint that you're using so you can feel your way along the wall. Uh, uh, another one to, God, I've got a lot of slides. Um, <laughs> this was a project also from earlier this year in Abu Dhabi, uh, a really nice ball court as well. So again, working for property developers, but doing some really fun stuff. This was with two Brighton-based artists called Art and Believe, who are just lovely to work with. Um, so often what we do as well is partnering with artists to be able to help execute this stuff. Uh, this one is also in the neighborhood. Um, Really proud of this one because it's a, it's a rainbow. It's a, it's obviously, it's a rainbow. It's a pride rainbow. But to be given a task of painting a rainbow and to make it artistically interesting and technical and not just a gradiated rainbow is not necessarily an easy thing to do. But the artist that we work with on this one, um, Neeston Auto, I think, did a really good job. So it's London. London's great, you know, a really good rainbow. And what's been lovely is seeing so many people take photos and pose in front of it. So it's a, a cool space as well. So why hand-painted advertising works? So um, flicking back to just, you know, kind of any of the examples, right? So obviously it looks different, right? And if something is differentiated, it looks great, that in inverted commas supports recall. All it basically means is if something looks different, you're gonna remember it more. And because what we do is with the hand-painted advertising side is a very small, young, and still quite niche industry, you're gonna notice it more, we think, because it's different. It builds intrigue. What do I mean by that? The second thing about um, hand-painted advertising, we just call it HPA, hand-painted advertising. The second thing is it's not quick. It takes at least two or three days to do it. So if you're going on a bus and you're passing the wall, you're going to look up on day one. You're noticing people because they're working on the wall. By day two, day three, you're probably going to notice the brand as well because you're curious how it ends up. Number three is the one that I think in, a, in an age where technology kind of continues to slowly envelop us and tech is so pervasive, it's really nice to have something that feels so human-powered. Of course, ironically, it then gets shared on social media as well, so you know, aware of that irony. Um, but it's really nice working with people um, to just make this stuff happen, and it's kind of hard, hard work, quite a lot of hard graft, and that is one of the things that makes it feel kind of satisfying when you finish the project. Traditional techniques. This is really, this, this can be quite important from a brand narrative point of view. Um, so some of the techniques we use would have been used when the Sistine Chapel ceiling was painted. Some of the things that we're doing and the techniques and the materials and the ideas have, have existed for hundreds, if not many more years than that um, as well. The idea of its premium. When uh, we probably started, so Global Street has been going since 2012, we're about seven years old. We started the hand-painted advertising probably 
let's say four or five years ago, roughly. Um, when we were starting, the kind of brands that wanted to engage with us were very much kind of the streetwear brands, the ones that had like the graffiti aesthetic, and they're still very much a part of the mix, but the idea of uh, who hand-painted advertising is for has, com has changed completely. If by the time you're working for essentially financial institutions like HSBC, or you're working for premium brands like Gucci, it, it kind of tells you that the industry isn't where it was four or five years ago. Um, makes great content. Um, everything we do, there's a more or less everything we do, there's making of videos, artist interviews, potentially podcasts, GIFs. We produce a lot of that kind of content because it's fun to us to do anyway, and we like to record it, but it's also, it's shared by us sometimes, it's shared by the clients on their channels, it also generates quite nice user-generated content because everyone, not everyone, but people walk by and take photographs as well, so it creates content. Uh, it's social, it's shared, diverse mix. If you're if you're looking to get into something and it's kind of new, it sometimes wins because it's kind of new. So if someone is doing a huge advertising campaign and they want the one thing that makes it stand out to be a bit different, diversity helps there as well. Supports narrative, supports art. Um, supports narrative is when, uh, like, the Mac like the Mac example I showed you before, is when the materials directly relate to the product, when there's something about the creative execution that, re that relates to the brand as well. And supports art is because, and we're proud to say this, we, we work with artists. So we also, our leftover paint is given back into the community, help supports housing estates and other painting. Uh, and having that as a something that also happens as part of what's essentially uh, a predominantly advertising business side of what we do, it feels like we've got this balance and this other stuff going on as well, which is great. Um, I haven't talked about this stuff in public before, because I thought it would be quite fun for, uh, uh, to just go through a couple of stories of, of projects that we've had, because uh, I, I think the, the crowd is at very different stages in their careers, but quite a lot of people are going into university or just out of university, and they're looking to maybe take a role somewhere in a company in advertising. So these are two campaigns that were socially driven and advertising, uh, and they were somewhat different to how we expected it. So I'm gonna start with a bathtub. Uh, and I don't know how you would imagine that this relates to, to a lighter, but this was a project for Zippo uh, a couple of years ago now. So uh, we worked with a, a, a very famous, a famous artist who I mentioned before, a really a nice guy called Ben Ein, um, who's a typo typography artist. And um, we were tasked with painting a giant floor in Hackneywick, 17 and a half thousand square meters, photographed by drone, NASA satellites were taking progress shots as well. To give you a sense of how big the space was, it's basically two and a half jumbo jets that way by two and a half jumbo jets that way. Massive, massive, massive space. And because I had like a, a math science background, I'm gonna go a bit technical. New paint costs about five pounds a liter. Recycled paint costs a quid a liter. It's a fifth of the price. So if you're gonna paint something absolutely massive, and you want to try and save a bit of money, you probably might want to look into recycled paint. So we partnered with a paint recycling charity, and then that fed into the design. So we wanted the background to be one consistent color. If you mix white, which is the most common recycled paint, with everything else, you basically get gray. So although it looked like it was designed, it was a consequence of how we produced this project. I'm getting a bit technical. This is where it went wrong. On the day that we were supposed to move in and start painting, 30 traveler caravans moved on to site. And I remember getting this photo and sitting at my laptop, and I was like, 
this is new. I don't, don't really know what to do here. There wasn't, <laughs> there's definitely not a book about explaining how to do this. So the project got a little bit delayed, but essentially the, the travelers were collecting waste from other places, charging people a little bit to take their waste away, and then dumping it on the site. It's a lot of waste. So there were tons and tons and tons of waste. So the project got delayed by, I don't know, six weeks or so by the time the courts were ordered. And luckily, the property developers took, who own, ultimately owned the site took pity on us. Uh, and they removed and cleared all the waste. And then we were able to do it from there. It seemed like such a curse at the time. But I don't think, if I'm honest, that we were really ready to start painting on that day anyway. The six-week breather that we got and the excuse that we got to do it, to mix more paint, to build the team, helped us immeasurably. And that's how it ended up. So this was a massive piece, 17,500 square meters, like I said. That's a car at the bottom, if you can see that little dot. So it was absolutely massive. Obviously, it did really well online. It had 21 million views, not impressions. I can't remember. But it got seen by a lot of people, generated a lot of press. That's story number one, how things can go very, very wrong, but somehow end up quite right. Uh, and the second story, I guess, is, is almost a bit simpler. Um, that if you do one thing right, it can obviously lead to other things. So I'm not, uh, I don't know much about fashion. I'm not, um, I was never really into it as a kid. Um, we got a phone call from Fendi, Italian uh, fashion brand, and they, um, really lovely to work with. And they said, look, um, can you paint on the roof of our building? We want six artists from around the world in a different language, uh, all writing in a different language, to write the word freedom. I know it says future. Um, so there was an artist writing in Hebrew, Arabic, Korean, Chinese, English, and uh, I think that's the six. I think it was the six. Um, to avoid it being a bit political between the Arabic and the Hebrew, we ended up with the word future. Um, and it worked, and, and we designed this in-house. And it was kind of an accident, but again, it was dictated by the space. So because there's this giant light well in the middle, if you're going to write the word future in six languages, uh, around the roof, you've kind of got to go around for it to sort of make sense. It seems like a natural layout. And then they said, all right, what colors do you want to do this in? And we thought black and gold is a really nice color. It turns out that yellow is Fendi's color anyway, so they said, could you do it in black and yellow? So of course we said yes. We designed this one, and then, uh, and then they went for it. Um, what was quite strange at the time was, as I mentioned before, companies like Gucci or Louboutin are starting to increasingly work with street art and street artists, and, and just, just Let's just say artists, because even now I feel a bit funny using the word street artist, because I think it pigeonholes artists who are often a lot broader. Um, they really liked the design. They bought the rights to it afterwards. It became a best-selling T-shirt that year. And so we've got this ongoing and continuous relationship with Fendi. And in May, they released their new collection. And over 60 items in that collection have uh, graphic elements that were designed by an artist, Pref who I mentioned before, and we helped put all that stuff together. So it was quite a funny day in the office when some of the samples arrived. Really nice, okay, so that was the second story. So again, like it's doing a good job and then it leads to other stuff. Um, I guess because of what DNAD and New Blood represents, I wanted, I, I, it was really nice to actually have just a bit of an excuse to, to sit back a little bit and think about what it's been like working with the artist community and basically learning about the advertising world and agency life and client stuff completely from scratch. And some of the things that, um, here's some of the stuff I learned. To, to what extent it's helpful, I don't know, but whatever. Um, 
the things that make you different make you valuable. If we all think the same, we're all going to come up with the same product. That's pretty obvious. But I didn't realize the maths in my kind of science side would be really useful when I was working out paint quantities and how to mix paint in bathtubs for the Zippo project. Uh, that I came from a dance background actually meant that I had like, I have different connections still with break dancers and street sort of dancers uh, in, in different countries as well. And that's helped us in other projects when there's been crossovers between different things. The stuff that sets you apart, the people that you know, the experiences you've had, help you bring in your creativity somewhat different. So quite a lot of the ideas that I'll come up with are just quite scientific in that they're A to B to C to D. But we have some people who are very, I almost think kind of, scatty in some ways, or just not, their, their ideas are just all over the place, can think ideas and stuff that I've got, I'd never come up with by myself. And that's one of the things that makes it such a pleasure working in the team that we've got, because there's quite a lot of different ways of thinking. And the more of that, the better, if the space knows how to, if the organization knows how to basically cherish that. Um, <coughs> point two is really important uh, at any stage in your career. And I have to remind myself this quite a lot, because I'm inherently not the most positive, I'm quite conservative by a lot of natures and quite a lot of things scare me. Um, but you didn't know you could do anything new before you actually did it. Often in this kind of, you know, in the industry, uh, it helps to just say yes now and then figure it out afterwards. I mean, it kind of goes without saying, but often when a crazy request comes in, the temptation is to say no. Actually, the right answer is usually yes, but. So what are the constraints? What would need to be in place to make that idea work instead of flat out rejecting stuff? Number three is really important, and actually, coming from a science background where, I mean, like, you know, it, uh, I'm quite, obviously, quite you know, socially awkward. Uh, anyway, that you, working in science is very, very different from working with artists and this kind of community over an established period of time. And what I've really learned that really helps is expect long relationships. And how you treat people day to day really should be with a view that you're going to be working with that person for 10 years or more, for hopefully the rest of your career. And if you're working well with each other, then that's more likely to happen. But those relationships, and, and for us it means as an agency, how fast we pay our suppliers. You know, we pay people on the same day that we get invoices. It's very rare that happens in the industry. But it's little things like that that help you build that trust and credibility that if you need to do something at fairly short notice or something that sounds quite a wild, at least people will do two things. They'll take your idea seriously, and more important, they'll just pick up the phone to you. Because really, the only thing that I think we've got with our artist relationships is if we make a phone call, quite a lot of people will pick up the phone. And that's quite helpful in itself. Uh, making sure the service is as good as the product. Because what we do is quite bespoke, often I think that we're not necessarily just selling an amazing mural, but we're selling the reassurance of the process. So if you're producing some really good work, really good artwork, really good illustration services, that's half of it, but it's only half of it. You have to make sure that the service is as good as the product. That means getting back to people quickly, being on top of your emails. It means a whole bunch of other things, but that is a, a, a really useful component. Uh, the next one goes a bit without saying, if you're interested, you'll do better. If you're finding yourself in a position where your career is doing this and going up, great, well done, that's amazing. Also, if you're in a position where it's really tanking and it's really not going where you want it to go, that's not that bad necessarily, because that will probably give you a bit of a nudge to do something else. The dangerous point is that bit in the middle where things are kind of comfortable, but you're not necessarily as engaged as you'd like to be. I'm not necessarily saying trash everything in, follow your passions, because we say that a lot today, quite broadly, and people have got mortgages and kids and bills, and it's not as easy as people make that out to be. But if you can, 
even within whatever sphere that you're working in, find stuff that you're interested in, you'll probably do it better. And the last one is a little bit more complicated. Um, and I took care at the beginning of this talk to basically explain what our mission is to live in painted cities and also to try and give a little bit of a narrative. So the mission is, and I'll explain both of those. I'll explain both of those. A mission is really important. Um, for anyone who's seen, I think it's Simon Sinek talk. He does a lot of TED, TED type talks. Um, if you've got, there's a, a mistake that's often made where people try and have a company that has 10 things that make them, 20 things, here's our like 10 core values. It's really hard to remember 10 things. It's quite easy, it's much easier to remember one. And so if you're gonna remember one thing, which is essentially what a mission is, it becomes not only easier to explain it to other people, but also easier for other people to identify it with it. Because whether anyone in here is conscious of it or not, if I say our mission to, is to live in painted cities, you're probably gonna go, that sounds reasonable actually, I can get on board with that. It's a lot easier to get on board with a sure, clearly articulated mission than something that's convoluted. So having that mission is something that you can remind yourself, something that's gonna keep you humble, but also something that's easy for, for other people to understand why you're doing what you're doing. And the next one is learn a narrative. Often when people say, look, the world make a mistake, often people make a mistake, I think, when they're talking about where their business is going, where the agency is going, where their career is going. They're saying, look, I'm here today, and I'm gonna be here in five years. And that's, that's what it is. The world is here today, we're gonna to be here in five years, get on board. The thing that someone taught me, which I thought was really helpful, is your narrative has a history. So the reason I told you that graffiti and street art has a 50-year history, why, why it has a 50-year history is because I've taken you from 50 years to today, and I've explained that there's three trends. The arts change, there's more organization, there's more enterprise that have taken us to this point now, and because we've got this long timeline, it's inevitable that going forward five years, we're gonna live in, more city, uh, in, in cities that are painted more. So that kind of narrative has been really helpful to basically give something a deep history, take it to today, and then to explain why this next bit is inevitable. Because if there is something that's genuinely inevitable, you don't have to sell it pretty hard because people will realize that and it's easier for them to get on board. So that's some of the stuff that helped me. Um, uh, thank you very much for having us here. It's been lovely speaking with you guys. If you've got questions, I'll be here for a bit. Thank you so much, Lee. Um, actually, if anyone has some questions now that they want to put to Lee, raise your hands. I'll come over with a mic. But if not, you can come and find him at the end. That's absolutely fine. Great. Um, so we're going to have a bit of a break um, now to our next... Um, uh, it's actually a live podcast recording that we have coming up. Um, so join us again at 2.30, I believe, for the next one. Okay. See you then.